Well, I'm really glad to be with you. My name is Andrew, one of the pastors here at Park Community Church. And before we get into James this morning, as we continue to look at our text here, I just want to thank Mike and Garth for preaching the last two weeks for me. It's so amazing for me to be a pastor in a church where there's other people who can preach the Word of God and are willing to do it. Amen? Because like Linda said, the worship gets done and she's like, oh shoot, it's done, I want more. Because then you have to listen to me when the music is done. <laughs> no, that's not what she meant, but. I'm so glad to be a part of a church where there's other people who are filled with the spirit of God and the wisdom of God and know the word of God and can share it. I invite you into community groups. If you're not in a community group, join a community because this happens every week in community groups, whether it's on Zoom or whether you're starting to get back into real relationships in person, in-person conversations, whether here at the church building or now as restrictions lift and the weather gets better, you can start gathering in backyards and living rooms again. And it's God's people opening up God's word, being transformed by it. And many of our community group leaders preach and teach and, and facilitate conversations around the word. And then we have people who can stand up and proclaim and declare the word of God. So, Mike, thank you for doing that. Garth, thank you for doing that. The second thing that I want to mention before I get into the sermon is that Mike is actually an elder candidate. So, Mike is right here. Can, uh, yep, there he is. He preached two weeks ago. He's going to come up in a couple weeks and share a little bit more about himself. But you just heard from Linda, his wife. They've been a part of Park Community Church for a few years and have been supported by our church as global partners for since 1988. So you do the math. Public math is hard. I can't do it. 1988, this church started supporting them as they were planting churches in South America. And most of their ministry was there. Now they're stationed here, but they still continue to do missionary work, global partner work around the world. And so I'm really glad to have Mike Gunderson accept the invitation to join our elder team. That will be confirmed by our members. On May 16th, we have an annual business meeting. So put that on your calendar. It'll be four 4 p.m. to 5.30, and we will vote on Mike becoming an elder. So right now is the announcement. He's an elder candidate, and if you believe that Mike would make a good elder, a, a spiritual overseer for our church family, you can vote on him becoming an elder May 16th. Um, there's a couple different ways that we come up with these names. Different people suggest people in the church family. One of the things that I like to do is I ask my children who they think would be a good elder. And I've kind of taught them what an elder is. It's a spiritual overseer, someone who cares about the spiritual health and growth of our church family. Think of it like a spiritual father. And so I asked my kids who they think should be an elder regularly. And I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old. Oakley, my four-year-old, she thinks like Pinkalicious and Daniel Tiger should be elders, so I don't quite value her opinion as much. Uh, but my seven and my nine-year-old, I love the names that they throw out at me. And every name that they've thrown out at me, I'm like, you're right. I think they would make a great elder. They are a spiritual overseer, a spiritual father who cares about the health of the church. And so that's what an elder is. If you're unfamiliar with what an elder is, essentially that's what an elder is. And so if you think Mike would be a good spiritual overseer, spiritual father of our congregation, uh, get to know him. If you haven't had a chance to get to know him, reach out to Mike and spend some time getting to know him. And then if you are a member, you can vote for that on May 16th. With that, we're going to move back into the book of James. And so we're going to look at James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 this morning. So I'm going to ask that you stand and follow along as I read our text for today. James, the brother of Jesus, writes to the first century church in Jerusalem ten or so years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension 
into heaven. Here's what James writes. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Father God, I pray that you would stir this word in us this morning, that you would clarify it, that you would use it to stir our affections for Jesus Christ, our Savior, that you would also use it to transform our living. We ask that you would do your supernatural work in us and among us this morning for your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have a seat. Well, as I summarize this passage, this short passage here, here's the big idea for the morning. Wisdom is less about what you know and more about how you live. Biblical wisdom is less about what you know and more about how you live. Consider the question that James asks in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? It's a good question to ask. You've asked that question a lot this past year because there's been a lot of things to question. Who is wise and understanding among us? Who knows the best practices for handling a global pandemic? Masks, no masks. Vaccines, no vaccines. Who who has the answers of, of the racial tensions that we've experienced in our world in the last year? Pastors, professors, theologians. News commentators, can you, can you learn about systemic racism? Where, where's the best place to get this information? Who is wise and understanding among us? Now, pay attention. James is directing this to the church, to the family of God. And so he's saying, who is wise and understanding among you in your fellowship? He's just come out of the the previous section, which Mike preached two weeks ago, is about taming the tongue. And in verse 1, he says, not many of you should become teachers. In in this culture, in the first century, the common answer to the question, who is wise and understanding among you, was the teachers. It was the Greek philosophers. It was the Jewish rabbis or the Roman intellectuals. In this society, in this culture, they're kind of coming out of this this Greek-influenced thought. Socrates and Aristotle, all this deep philosophy. If you read the book of Corinthians, especially, especially 1 Corinthians, there's a lot there about wisdom. What is true wisdom? What is true knowledge? James is asking this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Their common answer, their their common thought and their culture would say the people who know the most are the wisest. In the 21st century, we assume the same, don't we? Well, wisdom must come from the person who knows, who has all the answers. We look to professors. We look to people with PhDs. We have our favorite podcasts. 
Maybe you listen to politicians and you think they have some sort of wisdom. Or bloggers, you have your favorite blog source that you go to. And and there may be wisdom in all of those sources. But generally, isn't that how we think about wisdom in our culture? That whoever has the most information, whoever, whoever has the most accurate information, whoever has the best facts, that's who we ought to listen to. We assume, just like they did in the first century, that the teachers, or at least the talkers, have the wisdom Those who teach, James says, who is wise and understanding among you? Coming out of a section where he's warning teachers and a section where he's warning us that our tongue has power for great harm or great good because James knows that people generally think that people who have the most information, the most facts, the most well-studied, the most well-versed in any particular topic They're the people with wisdom. That's what the culture says. But there's a problem with thinking that wisdom flows from knowledge. The problem is that people can have a lot of information with little to no heart transformation or change. The other problem with thinking that wisdom flows from knowledge is that that's not what the scriptures teach. James here in this passage, speaking on behalf of God, writing us the authoritative word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, James is making the point that wisdom is shown by our acts, not by our accumulation of facts. He answers the rhetorical question that he asks in verse 13. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13, part A, and then part B, he answers it. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of salvation. After calling teachers to a higher standard and after warning the church that what they say has immense power for good or for harm, James is now letting us know that wisdom is less about what we know and more about how we live. And he does this by comparing two types of wisdom. Wisdom from above, wisdom from on high. If you look in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above... And he compares that in verse 15. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes from above. So there's two types of wisdom that James is going to look at here and and help us to understand how wisdom is more about how we live and less about what we know. Now, let me give you a little sidebar. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't seek to learn things. That facts are unimportant. That knowledge is unimportant. It's not. But James knows that the pendulum generally swings with mankind, that we think if we can acquire knowledge, if we can accumulate facts, then we'll be wise and understanding. And that's not the biblical way of wisdom. The biblical way of wisdom is about living in a godly manner. And so James is comparing these two. Let's look at the book and see what James has to say. First of all, I'm going to start with wisdom from below, or this wisdom that's not from above, the the worldly wisdom, if we could even call it wisdom. James helps us to understand what it is. Verse 14, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. That's why I say it's the wisdom from below, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So this is what James is telling us. The way of the world, the wisdom of the world is filled with every vile practice. 
This doesn't mean that God's truth and that, that truth only comes through Christians, but it means that if we're not careful and if we're not checking the facts that we're taking in or the information that we're checking in, that we're taking in with the word of God, we're going to be led astray. He clarifies what wisdom from below is bitter jealousy. Jealousy can also be translated as zeal. Some of the translations have the word zeal there, and zeal is not inherently bad, nor is jealousy. God is jealous for his people. If you are married, you ought to be jealous for your spouse. You ought to be jealous or zealous for the good of your kids, for the good of your family, for the good of your friends. Zeal or jealousy is not inherently bad. It's often good, but James qualifies this type of jealousy as bitter. The, the, the way of the world or wisdom from below, it's this, this bitter jealousy. It's the same word that he uses here for bitter is the same word used in verse 11. Look up at verse 11. He says, does a spring, he's talking about the tongue here, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? The word there for salt is the same word that he uses for bitter here in verse 14. If you've ever been in the ocean and you've gotten some salt water in your mouth, you know how you react to that. When I was a teenager, I worked at Sven and Oli's up in Grand Marais. Anyone ever been to Sven and Oli's, the pizza shop up in Grand Marais? So many of you. Amazing. You'll probably see the bumper stickers around if you pay attention. I worked at Sven and Oli's and we would always play pranks on each other because that's what you do when you're a teenager and you're working, right? And I remember one day particularly, they got, my, my friends got me so good. We were like daring each other to eat different things, and one of the toppings that you could put on pizza is anchovies. And I had never tried an anchovy, and so they were like, all right, try the anchovy, and we'll give you a dollar. I'm like, I'll try an anchovy for a dollar. People willfully, people pay more than a dollar to put this on their pizza. I will receive your dollar to try this. So I took a bite of it, and it was just awful. It was horrific. My body reacted. I, I spit it out. For one, it was salty. It, to me, it tasted bitter. But then I did what you would do after you try something bad. I grabbed my, my cup that was full of cherry Coke. I grew up on cherry Coke. At Sven and Oli's, that's all I drank. I grabbed it, took a huge swig of cherry Coke, and what I didn't know is that in their setting up of me, they had filled my cup with salt and mixed it into the cherry Coke. And so not only was my mouth filled with this bitterness from anchovies, but I took this huge swig of extremely salty cherry Coke, and out it came in the kitchen at Sven and Oli's. Think twice next time you eat there. But this is what bitter jealousy is. It's, it's, the type of, it's the type of character and the type of thought process that makes people repel what you have to say or what you have to offer. Bitter jealousy, it, it's wanting to hoard what you have, not share your stuff with others. Or if you are sharing your stuff with others, you're the person who's always expecting something in return. People don't even want to take your gifts because they know that you're calculating. They know that you're going to remember that you didn't thank them properly or that you didn't return it in the right time or that you never gave them a gift to say thank you. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't give a gift to say thank you. You shouldn't return it in proper time. But it's the type of person who, who always has a, a mixed motive. I'm sharing something with you to get you in debt to me or I'm doing something nice for you to be recognized by others or to be recognized by you. This is bitter jealousy. And over time, you'll see people begin to kind of understand this characteristic and they kind of back away or they're hesitant to receive 
a gift or to let you help. It's a, it's a characteristic that wants to hoard what you have or take what others have. It seeks to get praise, to get stuff, to get approval, and it just creates this environment of bitterness. The next characteristic from wisdom from below, not godly wisdom, is selfish ambition. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, and just like jealousy, ambition isn't inherently bad. In fact, it's, it's good. It's good to be ambitious. It's, ambitious. it's good to be driven. It's good to be passionate. It's a good to, to, to get to work and to have ambition. But James clarifies this type of ambition as selfish. That is, it, it's this ambition that has me and mine at the center. It's an ambition to elevate myself. It's an ambition for me to position myself in such a way where I will benefit. Selfish ambition asks the question, what's best for me? What's best for my family? What's best for my friends? What's best for my life? How can I use my money to better myself? How can I use my my standing to better myself? How can I use my reputation to get more things for myself? Rather than asking the question, what's best for my neighbor? whether that's a geographical neighbor or just anyone you come in contact with. Selfish ambition says, how, how can I use what I have or what others have for my own benefit, my own advance, rather than how can I use what I have or what others have to care for others and to elevate others and to honor others? What's best for my neighbor? I started playing chess over Christmas break. First time in my life, I'm 36, and I just learned the game of chess. And in the game of chess, you use your pawns to protect your king, right? The goal is to kill the other person's king or put their king in checkmate before your king is in checkmate. And all the pieces on the board are used to protect your king. Selfish ambition is the same way. It sees yourself as the king and everyone else exists to position them so that I would be protected, I would be safe, I would get what I want. Now notice, James, for both bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he says, verse 14, this is really important, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, the word there for have in the ESV, I I like how the NIV says it, it says, if you hold bitter jealousy or selfish ambition, that Greek word where in the ESV it's have, in the NIV it's hold, it, it can mean either. And it's the idea there of we all have these fleshly impulses, right, of bitter jealousy. We're all prone towards bitterness. We're all prone towards improper zeal. We all have this fleshly impulse towards selfish ambition, towards wanting to protect me and mine. But James is saying if you, if you hold it in your heart, He's not saying that that fleshly impulse is what you are wrong for. We all have it as fallen human being. We all have this fleshly impulse. But he's saying if you, if you hold it, the issue isn't feeling bitterness or the impulse to act selfishly. The issue is when we, we hold on to bitterness. The issue is when we continue to selfishly pursue things that benefit us. It's an unwillingness to forgive others and to let go and, and it eats us up inside. And so just keep that in mind. That just because you have felt and will feel bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that doesn't mean that you're not being transformed by the work of God. 
the wisdom from James here is that that wisdom from below holds on to it. It's the person who grows bitter and bitter and bitter and bitter and bitter over time, more bitter and more bitter and more self-seeking and more selfish over time. He gives us a couple other characteristics of wisdom from below. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, right? This isn't God's wisdom, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Earthly, it means it's worldly. Oftentimes, we we think of sin and the temptation to sin as being from the world, from the flesh, and from the devil. These are three sources that can influence our, our temptation and our nature to sin. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is what James is getting at here. He says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It's not God's wisdom. But it's earthly, it's, it's worldly, means it's earthbound. It has no consideration of the unseen realm. It's bound and consumed by what is seen, what is touched, what is known. Next one is similar. He says it's unspiritual. It's earthly, it's earthbound, it's unspiritual, it's fleshly, it's, it's body-bound. It's fleshly-influenced ways of thinking, similar to the above as where he says it's earthly. It's earthly, it can only see the created being, but it's also unspiritual. It's, it's consumed with kind of body-bound thinking. One commentator says, this is where human feeling and reason reign supreme. That my mind is the ultimate authority of truth, an author on truth. That, that the information that I hear out there that's worldly information, it may not be godly, may be right, may be wrong, may be half-truths, may be half-right, but it's bound to understanding things in, in light of the world's interpretation and in light of my own fleshly limited interpretation, where human feelings and reason reign supreme. And then the third category he gives here is demonic. It's of the devil. It's a spiritually influenced way of thinking, but spiritually influenced devoid of Christ. It's, it's influenced by the demonic realm. And so James is warning us here that, that wisdom from below, or the worldly wisdom, it, it, it's bound by what is seen, what is known, what is created. And when it is influenced by the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, it's influenced by the demonic, the world, the flesh, and the devil. He goes on, he says, And where this exists, there will be disorder. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, verse 16, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder means to be unstable. Lacking confidence. Honestly, this is where our world is. And and it's not just now. The world's always been this way. Since the fall, nation against nation, people group against people group, I think we've we've had a very unique look at the disorder of the world in this last year with people being shut into their homes and getting anxious and angsty and then the death of George Floyd and then all of the protests, some peaceful and and some turning into riots in this last year. We've seen, and and then the political season and all of that and the the awful events that happened on January 6th with the storming of the Capitol, we've seen disorder. It's always been there. It's just been laying dormant. This last year, we've seen it in a new way. And James says, if you're listening to every voice out there, be careful that you're not being influenced by earthly thinking, worldly thinking, fleshly thinking, and and demonic thinking. 
Because it leads to disorder. Similar to what James said in chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Look at that with me. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. So in James chapter 3, when, when he's getting at this idea of wisdom, it's not a new concept for him. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 5, he talks about wisdom, and then he goes through and say, saying that a, a wise person puts their faith into action. A wise person holds their tongue. I think all of this, a wise person is impartial. They don't show partiality or favoritism. I think James' whole letter here is about wisdom. What is godly wisdom? In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Why? Because wisdom comes from above. Wisdom isn't produced from within us. Wisdom isn't the accumulation of facts. Wisdom is a way of life. Verse 6, he says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's exactly what James is saying and reiterating again in chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder, instability, tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine or every opinion or every competing news source that you hear. And then the last one that he gives us here is every vile practice. So not only does the, the wisdom from below or the ways of the world or the wisdom of the world produce all these other things, it also produces, I love this catch-all, every vile practice. You know what the Greek word for every is? Every. No tricks here. He's saying every vile practice the, the wisdom of the world or the way of the world, it will produce every vile practice. Every disgusting and despicable act that you've ever seen or that's been done to you or that you've done to others is a result of worldly thinking, worldly wisdom, an absence of God's wisdom from above. The darkness that we witness in our own families, the divisions, the sin that we experience in our own friend groups, in our own neighborhoods, in our own schools, in our state, in our country, in our world, and in our church. Yes, our church. Remember, James here is addressing the church. He's not writing this letter to the Roman Empire telling them how to straighten up, telling them how to live, telling them that they better stop living worldly and start living godly. He's instructing the church, the family of God. He's saying when we lean into wisdom from below or the ways of the world, every vile practice is produced. So be careful of your bitterness. Shun it. Don't harbor it. Don't hold it in. Don't sit in your bitterness and remain bitter and hold on to bitterness. Don't continue to selfishly pursue your own advancement. Don't continue to ask the question, what's best for me and mine? Ask the question, what's best for my neighbor? Because when we don't, every vile practice is produced. And oh, church, how we need deliverance. We need wisdom from above. So let's now look. James doesn't just leave us there. He gives us what wisdom from above is. 
He gives us all of these categories. It starts in verse 13. He says, by his good conduct, again, this whole premise, this whole big idea is that wisdom, biblical wisdom, true wisdom, isn't what you know, it's how you live. It's not the accumulation of facts, but it's your good acts. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That's the first clue that he gives us to what wisdom from above is. Starts with meekness. Now, meekness is not weakness. Meekness does not mean passivity. Meekness does not mean just rolling over and letting the wisdom of the world or the ways of the world, bitterness, selfish ambition, earthliness, fleshly thinking, unspiritual, demonic disorder in every vile practice, just have a heyday. doesn't mean just rolling over and being a doormat. Meekness is not weakness. It's strength under control and used for the good of others. It's the humility and the wisdom to use power, privilege, and authority for the good of others, not the good of self. It's the opposite of selfish ambition. It's ambition that has the good of others in mind. Some examples of meekness. Jesus. Jesus, he had all authority in heaven and on earth. When he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan said, you could call upon the angels and they would come and they would rescue you. Throw yourself off this cliff and God would rescue you. You have all power. And Jesus kept his mouth silent. He didn't give in to the temptation of Satan. When he was on trial, standing before Pontius Pilate, he kept his mouth shut. When he's on the cross, being crucified, one of the, one of the thieves on the cross said, why don't, you, why don't you get yourself down from that cross? You know that if you call out to God, your Father, He would rescue you. You have all power, all authority, all privilege. And Jesus remained silent because He was using His power, His privilege, and His authority for the good of you and I. Think about Stephen, the martyr, in Acts chapter 6 and 7. I love this. He's, he, I don't love it. It's unfortunate what happened. He was stoned to death in a public square. That means they threw stones at him until he died. Can you imagine a worse way to die? Publicly, if someone came in here, drug you out into the street, and they started chucking stones at you until enough of them hit you in the temple in your brain that, that your skull was crushed and you bled to death. This is how Stephen died in Acts chapter 7. And as it was happening, he said, Forgive them. Hold this not against them. He had strength under control. He didn't lash out. He didn't fight back. He didn't call all the other disciples to pull out their swords and attack. Remember Peter in the garden. The night before Jesus was crucified, he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the guard and Jesus says, Peter, put your sword down for my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, we have strength. These Roman guards have no power over me. Jesus himself says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly. That's meekness. So don't for a second think that meekness means that you just need to be weak. No, meekness means that you have power. In fact, Christian, you have the most power, privilege, and authority on earth. Christian, you have the most power, privilege, and authority on earth. You have the power of the Spirit. 
the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. You have the privilege of entering the throne room of the king. If you are in Christ, you can go into the presence of God, the holy other, holy, perfect, pure, righteous God. And all of you, all of what you know is wrong and broken and riddled with sin in you, you can walk into the presence of God and you're welcomed in. You have that privilege to stand in his presence. And also you have authority. You have authority over the devil, his schemes, and his demon armies. And so I don't say this, that that Christians, we have the most power, privilege, and authority on earth to negate the very real and godless abuses in our culture. I mean, racial, gender, social, and economic privileges and disadvantages exist in our culture. They just do. Some of you have such a hard time believing that you have power, privilege, and authority because the structures and the, the culture that you live in does not empower you. It disadvantages you. you. You may not have authority. One of the things that I've had to wrestle with this past year and just God has really opened my eyes to it is think what you want about this, but I am a middle class, I'm approaching middle age. It's unfortunate. I've always prided myself in not being a middle-aged white American male. I'm heading there. And that historically in America has been one of the most powerful, privileged, and authoritative roles to be in in our culture. And so I've had to ask myself, what does it mean for me to be meek? In my marriage, God has given me a level of authority and responsibility for my family and among my wife. In my church, God has given me a level of power and privilege and authority to lead. This doesn't mean that, meekness doesn't mean that I'm just weak and passive, but it means that this power, this privilege, this authority, yes, we all have it equally in Christ, but in cultural systems, different people have different levels of it, and I have one of the highest ones, and so I have to constantly ask myself, God, what does it mean for me to use my power, my privilege, and my authority to keep it under control and use it for the good of others? I love doing ministry with Pastor Ben. Because as we talk about different situations, he'll often say like, hey, just remember, you're the pastor. And so in that conversation, this person already feels like you have a leg up on them. And so be careful. Be quick to listen. Be meek. And I want to remind us, church family, That though these power dynamics exist in our culture, that if we get too wrapped up into them, that's, that's the way of the world. The wisdom of God reminds us that in Christ, we all, black, brown, or white Christian, male or female, child or grandparents, we all have the most powerful, privileged, and authoritative position imaginable. Godly wisdom is for us to stand united and to collectively use our diverse power, our diverse privilege, and our diverse authority for the glory of God, the good of others, and the advancement of his gospel. That is meekness. That's the meekness of God's wisdom. And then from there, he he flows. He keeps going. So jump down to verse 17. That's all kind of the setup in verse 13 for what wisdom from above is. Meekness of wisdom. 
And then in verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above, God's wisdom, is first pure. It's undefiled. It's holy. It's sacred. It originates with God, the Holy One, and it's imparted from God to us. True wisdom, it's not an accumulation of facts, but it's how you act. It's not what you know, it's how you live. And it's a characteristic or a lifestyle that God imparts. This is why it's from above, not from below. It's a supernatural gift that God has given to his people. I love how Isaiah talks about purity. Isaiah 1.18, he says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. Purity is a gift from God. Or Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, he says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. That's the wisdom from above. The way of God is purity. He's imparted this to you. And now we grow in it. We learn to live in it. And he goes on to say, the wisdom from above is peaceable. means to be made whole. We have been made whole with God, and now we live to become whole or reconciled to others. James reiterates this in verse 18. He says, And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There's a difference between being a peacekeeper and a peacemaker. The wisdom from above, God's wisdom, works at peace, works at reconciliation. It has the hard conversations. It asks forgiveness. It seeks forgiveness. It extends forgiveness. It works through conflict. It doesn't just sweep it under the rug perpetually over and over again saying, i, I got to keep the peace. I don't want to poke the bee's hive. I just, I'm not going to open my mouth because it's going to create a conflict. No, the wisdom from above is peacemaking. It's working it out. It's being long-suffering. And then James flows into that. The next one is gentle. So the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, then gentle. This, this Greek word translated into gentle, it means to be equitable or yielding or patient. It means to relax from overly strict standards and it puts up with other people's, catch this, it puts up with other people's opinions. How many of you are so sick of that? Well, biblical wisdom is to continue to put up with other people's opinions and perspectives and ideas and even their errors. This doesn't mean you never challenge or push back, but you've got your own things that need to be challenged and pushed back upon. And, and how great is it when somebody who disagrees with you will put up with your opinions? Because you always want your opinions to be heard, but you don't want to hear theirs, right? You want to correct theirs. And here, biblical wisdom, God's wisdom, is to be gentle, or that means equitable, yielding, patient, relaxing from overly strict standards and putting up with other people's opinions, ideas, perspectives, and even errors. It's what you do if you're married. It's what you do with your spouse. It's what your spouse does with you every day. If you're not married, it's what you do with your family, your friends, your coworkers, it doesn't, your neighbors. Relationships, healthy relationships require gentleness or the ability to be patient and yielding to another person. 
The next one is similar. He says, for the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. Open to reason, it's very similar to this idea of gentleness. It's, it, it's not speaking rashly, but rather listening willingly, considering honestly, and yielding regularly. That's what it means to be open to reason. It was one year ago this Sunday that our church went virtual because the coronavirus had hit and we were told to shut down. One year ago this Sunday. And all of a sudden, everyone was being asked to put masks on and to stay home. And and now a year later, we continue to debate this. People continue to have their opinions. They continue to have their perspectives. They continue to have their ideas. And so what it means, just practically speaking, what it means to be gentle and open to reason, biblical wisdom, here's what biblical wisdom does that's different than worldly wisdom. Biblical wisdom will say, if you're the type of person who interprets the data and the science in such a way that you think shutdowns and masks and vaccinations are good, and I disagree with that, I'm willing to listen to you and to yield to you. If you think we ought to wear a mask because you interpret the, diet, the science and the data that way, and, and I interpret the science and the data a different way, you've realized that people interpret it differently, right? There's not a consensus. And biblical wisdom isn't to say, you need to see it my way. Biblical wisdom is, I'm going to yield to you. And that doesn't mean we never have the conversation. But my, my, my posture, my first posture, my first reaction is to yield, not to correct. It's to listen, it's not to speak. And if you're the type of person who interprets the data that masks are an overreaction and a government overreach and vaccines are dangerous because of whatever reason, you, you yield to the person who says mask up. And in relationship, you work this out. That's biblical wisdom. The world's wisdom digs its feet in, it digs its heels in, it argues, it fights, creates camps. And so here, James is warning us 2,000 years ago, long before the coronavirus, to be gentle and open to reason, to be patient, to be yielding, to be equitable. He goes on, he says, the wisdom from above is full of mercy. It means it's compassionate. It's ready to help those in need. To have mercy means to not give someone what they deserve. And so this means when you see somebody in a situation that they're in by their own doing, You don't say, well, that serves them right. They made poor financial decisions, and that's why they're in poverty, and it's not my problem. They made bad marriage decisions, that's why their their life is a mess, and not my problem. Their kids are unruly because they're unruly, not my problem. No mercy is to say, I have compassion. I have a heart to help. I have a heart to care. Wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits. Wisdom is full of good conduct, as James tells us in verse 13, which produces good fruit. Generally speaking, if you live with good conduct, as James calls us to in verse 13, you will produce good fruit, which he says will happen in verse 17. Generally speaking, if you live with bad conduct, you will produce bad fruit. If you plant tomato seeds in the right environment, in the right soil, with the right water, you will grow tomato plants. You won't. They will just grow. It's similar to spiritual growth. 
You plant, you water, you till. Sometimes it grows, sometimes it doesn't. Galatians 6, verse 7 says, you reap what you sow. This is what James is getting at here. Wisdom is not what you know, it's how you live. If you live with good conduct, generally speaking, there will be more and more and more good fruit in your life. And two more, he says, wisdom from above is impartial. It doesn't show favoritism. James already dealt with this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. And it's sincere. That means it's genuine. It's honest. It's not manipulative or knowingly hypocritical. Wisdom is less about what you know and more about how you live, church family. And if we're honest, who among us doesn't identify with the list on the left side as much or more than the list on the right side? James chapter 3, verse 2 tells us that we all stumble in many ways. And in verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He's inviting us to confession. We all stumble in many ways. If we're honest, we all identify with the list on the, re- on the left as much, if not more, if we're honest, than the list on the right. We all stumble in many ways. He tells us in verse 2, verse 14, don't boast and be false to the truth if these things are in your heart. See, after living with Jesus and observing Jesus' ministry and listening to Jesus' teaching and seeing Jesus hang on a Roman cross, seeing the empty tomb, talking to the risen Savior, and then being filled with the Holy Spirit, James, the brother of Jesus, knows something that's vital to gospel health and gospel growth. James knows that there's freedom in confession because there's forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so James calls us, brothers and sisters, to honestly assess ourselves, to confess our faults, and to come to Jesus, the one who has no faults, yet takes our faults upon himself and imparts to you and to me his wisdom and his perfection. So rather than being defined by the left side of this list, in Christ we're now justified and defined by Jesus' perfect record of righteousness, by his life marked with meekness, purity, peaceability, gentleness, reason, mercy, fruit, impartiality, and sincerity. You, in Jesus Christ, are defined not by your flesh and what you know to be true in your inner hearts and what you're struggling with, that constant battle on the left side. You are marked by the right side through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so, church, this morning, if you are in Christ, I want to invite you to come to the table. Come to the plastic cup and drink deeply from God's forgiveness. For though you wrestle with the things on the left, the wisdom from below, you have been defined by and justified in the way on the right, the wisdom from above. God, the Word, the Logos coming in flesh giving you new life. And so we're going to transition to rehearsing the gospel. Taking communion to be reminded as as you take communion, take it whenever you feel led and ready, the wafer represents Jesus' body broken for you. The, The juice represents his blood shed for your deeds on the left and his perfect deeds on the right 
which now he imparts to you and empowers you to live out. So come, come to the table ready to receive. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are perfection, that you are righteousness, that you are meek, power under control and used for the good of others, that you are pure, that you are peaceable, that you are gentle, that you are full of reason and open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And Lord, a harvest of righteousness has been sown by you who made peace between us and God. And so this morning we remember you, we focus on you, the one who gives us peace. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Amen.